I was driving in Beverly Hills and the light, you know, the sun was shining in my eyes and I was turning and I almost hit a pedestrian who slammed their hands down on my hood and said, watch where you're going. And I just stopped and I looked and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing with my life? I almost killed somebody. I'm chasing a $150 phantom thong that I already know for a fact doesn't exist anymore because the company shut down like a year ago in France. And so I was like, I have more to offer in life than this. There's Mm. got to be more that I can offer. And that's when I started looking at something else that I can do in film where I could contribute. And I knew the power of film in my own life, having seen movies that changed my life and still to this day are, you know, I watch a little scene from them to bring me back to my, my, they're my beacon. So started IndieFlix with my good friend Carlo and the rest is history. Brian Smith here and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Sheila Andreen is on the show today. Sheila is an American filmmaker, award-winning producer, director, and Emmy-nominated costume designer. She is also CEO and co-founder of IndieFlix, a global entertainment screening and subscription streaming service based in Seattle. IndieFlix produces and distributes social impact films and series to create positive change in the world. Sheila is also a popular speaker at the Sundance, Cannes, and South by Southwest Film Festivals. And we talk about her experience at these festivals over the last 20 years during our interview. Sheila started her Hollywood career as a costume designer on some of the most popular shows on television, including The Wonder Years, starring Fred Savage, Dawson's Creek, Party of Five, Jack and Jill, and What I Like About You with Amanda Bynes. Sheila's most recent films include the documentaries Angst, about how anxiety is plaguing our nation's youth, Like, about the problems social media is causing, and Upstanders, about cyberbullying. I watched all three of these films during the interview and found them to be powerful, compelling, and important for purposes of not just educating viewers, but creating an opening for a dialogue with family, teachers, and students. The next film of Sheila's I hope to see soon is Nevertheless, which covers sexual harassment, gender-based violence, privilege, and toxic masculinity. It was a lot of fun talking to Sheila at the IndieFlix headquarters in Seattle. She's such a natural storyteller with so much charisma that it was hard for me to stop recording. I just wanted to keep going and hearing her perspective on the arts, filmmaking, the joys of working with millennials, the important role that film festivals play, and so many other fun topics. So let's jump right into my chat with Sheila Andreen. Sheila Andreen, thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, so we're here in your office in Seattle on a beautiful body of water. What what lake is this? Lake Washington. Lake Washington. And we're here with photographer Sarah Shannon. We are doing social distancing the best we can in the, the middle of this pandemic and hopefully toward the end of the pandemic. We're here to talk about your career. And why don't you just start off by telling us what IndieFlix is? Because we're in the, the headquarters, apparently, of, of IndieFlix. Yeah, the global headquarters. And isn't it an amazing Oh my gosh, space? it is gorgeous here. Yeah, I mean, just to, so the listeners can understand what we're looking at, we're on Lake Washington, and we are overlooking the lake in a dock. And it's, it's hard to describe. I'll put pictures on the website, <laughs> but it's so beautiful. 
this location, I can't imagine a more inspiring, peaceful, meditative location to have like a film company. That's a perfect segue because it is inspiring and healing. And I will say there have been many hills and valleys growing IndieFlix as a global streaming service and now a screening distribution service of offline community events. But the highs and the lows and the whether it's when the world economy is in the toilet or a pandemic or a strike or whatever is going on in the world, it's really nice to be able to look out at Mother Nature, to look at Mount Rainier, to look at Lake Washington. And it calms me and it keeps me pretty much focused on what I need to do. So I don't get caught up. If I think if I were in a cubicle, I probably would have, I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't have made it, I don't think. <laughs> so IndieFlix is a global subscription-based streaming service and screening distribution service. Basically, think of it as two pieces, which actually think of it now, we've evolved. We're really like three legs of the stool. The three legs of the stool are we have a streaming subscription service. We have a the offline community booking service of social impact films. And then we have, we also create original content now. And that's new. And we're going to be creating a lot more original content. And so the stuff that goes out into the schools and corporations and screens for existing communities is kind of our version of a theatrical. And the global streaming service is what you can watch. And we have like 5,300 titles, shorts, features, documentaries, web series of content for a purpose. So is it a fair comparison to say that IndieFlix is the equivalent of Netflix, but just on an independent sort of an indie film, educational film slant? Yeah. I mean, put it this way. Up until about two years ago, we were sort of the Netflix of independent film. But two years ago, I actually, we had over 12,000 titles and I pretty much sloughed off about 7,000 plus titles because I really wanted to be content for a purpose, movies that matter. And of course, all movies matter, right? Like for depending on the reason why the filmmaker made it and for the audience. Even horror has a reason for being, right? Yeah. But I really wanted to focus on content that opened up conversations, made us more aware of things on a social level created conversation. I wanted something where people would watch and then want to talk about it, or it reflected something uh, that's going on in the world to maybe make someone feel not so alone. And so I decided to pivot to focus on that. There's no point in trying to compete with Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, HBO, Disney+, Plus, Apple TV, like right. all of those. It's like, I love all of those. I, I'm a subscriber. I watch all my favorite shows on different places. So I basically turned the brand around about two years ago to be content for independent thinkers. Okay. And so that helped me open it up to be not just indies, but also edutainment-focused content, social impact, social justice, branded content, experimental content, content from film schools that focused on climate change or, you know, like it, it to me, it had a more focus. Yeah. It's interesting because it, it seems like as a layperson who's not in the industry, if I had 7,000 titles in my library, to let that go seems like it would be really hard for me to do. It was really, really hard. And I think a lot of people thought I'd lost it. And because, you know, for so many years, it was kind of an arms race with title count, especially with worldwide rights, which was really hard to get. We fought really hard and worked really hard to get those titles on our platform. And I was, you know, managing and working with the team to keep all of those filmmakers happy, which is always, which can be really challenging because, you know, they, they put their content up on different platforms and they're like, where's the money? Like, show me the money. Mm, okay. But, you know, you have to be out there promoting it. You have to, and you're in the, there's just, it's, the market is saturated. Yeah. And so then they're like, where's my money? It's been on your platform. It's like, 
have you been marketing it? Well, have you? And it's like, well, we have 12,000 titles. It's hard for us to market your movie. You know, our model was based on you marketing your movie. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of is a rule of thumb for any platform, including Netflix and Hulu and Amazon. Even though you go up on those platforms, you still need to promote your content yeah. for people to know where to find it. That's interesting. It, it sounds like then just having the titles that that in and of itself is it's great, but then there's a burden that comes with that or a responsibility that you have to weigh the pros and the cons of having that additional content out there. And also, I think I noticed in one of your social media posts and Instagram posts in the background, there was uh, not that I'm stalking you on social media, but <laughs> your, one of your most recent posts, you had a Seth Godin book. And I listened to Seth Godin, his, his Akimbo podcast, and he talks about this concept of the smallest viable audience that you should be seeking to obtain and retain you know, your smallest viable audience, which is sort of counterintuitive for someone who wants to be out there and be seen and be heard and, and you have this platform. But the counterintuitive part for me is you're narrowing the scope of what your mission is, which I think takes a lot of wisdom to do and discipline. Because otherwise, if you just go in like a, you know, I just want to be everything to everybody, you're going to be nothing to everybody. No, that's exactly right. You know, when I sloughed off those titles, when I had to let filmmakers know that because of the new mandate that I had implemented of content for a purpose and wanting to sort of occupy this edutainment space, a lot of them were really upset with me. They were like, F you, you're like abandoning the indie filmmaker. And it's just like, look, if I don't make a change also, we won't be here. Because I can't come out there and present ourselves as your source for independent film when we don't have the latest films from Sundance and Cannes and Toronto and Telluride. And because Amazon, Netflix, and Hulu are paying 8 to $10 million for those films. And the general public, while they love going to film festivals and they like seeing the films in the festival, they don't particularly want to stream them. They want to go there for the festival experience. And yeah. if there's one thing I've learned is... Um, I've learned about the human condition in being a CEO. That is the number one thing I've learned. Filmmakers are, you know, I just thought, oh my gosh, I so naively thought I'm going to hang a shingle, start IndieFlix with my producing partner, Carlo, who actually stepped back six months after we've started it because it, he's like, I'm a theater guy. I can't see the audience. This isn't for me. And, <laughs> but the filmmakers were like, I don't know. I don't want to put my content online. That's how long we've been around. We were DVD on demand in the early days. Oh, wow. And then we've evolved, you know, download, download, own progressive download, streaming, you know, movie club. We've done, we've done a lot of different iterations of getting audiences to come in and, and to watch content. But it's really hard to compete with the big guys. And since we've made this move, it's been game changing. I mean, it's people know who we are. They know what to expect. The content that gets submitted is amazing. And we're still working on getting, cleaning up the library to be even more focused on content for a purpose and what that really means. Yeah. We have classics on there and people are like, how is that content for a purpose? It's like, we have a decent sized footprint abroad and they love the classics and they think it's good for you. It's pretty innocent content. And so we've left that up there. So, you know, the transition is always tough, especially when you have so many, so much content and so many filmmakers. And it was really controversial. People were really, really, as I said, really angry. And now they've gotten over it. Thankfully, there are hundreds of streaming platforms out there oh, yeah. that they can go on. So not being on IndieFlix is not going to hurt them. Right. Right? Yeah. And, and I would imagine that there are tons of filmmakers who want to get into filmmaking 
and maybe edutainment, is that what you call it? Uh-huh. You know, edutainment is a way to do that. It's, it's an opening that's maybe a little more accessible for them. But the problem that they probably have seen historically is how do you make money from that? How do you monetize a 30-minute documentary when you don't have access to studio executives, Netflix, you know, made for Netflix projects? And your company provides an answer to that or a solution because the content there, it sounds like it's going out to schools and schools are subscribing and are using this to teach their students about really current, important subjects. Yeah, schools are utilizing the content on the site to teach or to just have conversation. But then we also have the whole other side of the business, which is where we book films into schools that screen, you know, like an assembly or an evening screening or in a boardroom of a corporation. And they might sell tickets or they might, and they'll have, you know, anywhere from like, you know, 20 people to 1,800 or 2,000 people. And then they might screen it in every single classroom. So 3,000 kids will watch it, plus their parents on an evening screening during the course of a week. So how does that work from a subscription standpoint? Is a school able to subscribe under a certain type of subscription where they can just play it to all of their students without worrying about the cost per student? Or do you actually charge per student or per classroom? Or what is the monetization? Oh, it's a license model? fee. Okay. It's outside of the subscription service, which is four ninety nine a month or $39 a year. You know, when you are using what we call the distribution lab, it's a completely separate license and it's for completely separate content. So the content that we take out into schools is kind of like newer content. So it is not available on the streaming service. And sometimes people get frustrated by that. They're like, well, why can't I just like subscribe and watch Angst or Like or The Upstanders or Finding Kind or Empowerment Project on IndieFlix? And it's because there is no conversation. So the whole point of having these, you know, school screenings basically is that then you have a conversation and when an existing community witnesses each other watching a film, whether it's about anxiety and depression, or it's about empowerment, equality, bullying, social media addiction, then you establish that community as a a safe place to talk about it. And you start sharing information and resources, and then it starts to evolve and you actually have an impact with your film. So the film is just a tool to open up the conversation. Yeah. And when you have it on the streaming service, not that many people are going to watch it or they might watch it, but then there's no one to have conversation with. And so it doesn't have sort of that therapeutic effect mm-hmm. or impact. Yeah. And if we were to have any of these films down at the you know, AMC or Lincoln theaters, no one's going to go down there to watch a movie about mental health. We could certainly put it up on PBS and all the PBS watchers will watch it, but there's still no conversation that's being had. So having these old-fashioned, face-to-face, human being, before COVID-19 and social distancing, we gathered in auditoriums and we watched concerts and we watched movies and we got together and the schools was an, were, it was an amazing venue to bring community together. Yeah, and I, that's what I noticed about watching Angst and Like and Upstanders. Watching them alone is great. I mean, because they're, they're very well done, high production value, important, very current. But without that conversation, it isn't having the impact probably that no. it was meant to have. You and know. didn't you want to talk to somebody? Yeah, and I, I had I had a family member that I wanted to talk to about angst, and uh, it's it is a perfect segue, I think, into difficult subjects. Yeah, it's modeling it for you how to have the conversation. You know, when you tell a kid, "Well, just speak up," they're like, "What do I say?" Yeah, right. Or this is my favorite. I, I was told this growing up: follow your passion. I'm like, "Well, I like to watch TV." <laughs> I like to ride my bike. I like, like, what does that mean? Follow your passion. 
Or here's another good one. Just be you. Yeah. Like, ooh, if I were me and someone knew how I was feeling right now, they would never hire me. Yeah. Or they would never, you know, like, they wouldn't want to be my friend because I don't feel good right now. So how do we, you know, how do we break that down? And I think movies are really good at that because it kind of can model it and then you can feel it. And when both those are happening, that's something you can remember and act on. Yeah. It, and it was neat to see the students or, or young people brought in to, to be subjects in these films because they are experiencing the same things that our kids are experiencing, but they're articulating them mm-hmm. in a very vulnerable way. And so they're, I think our kids, when they see them, are going to be like, okay, so there's other people out there who are feeling what I'm feeling, but they're saying it at least. And then you have the adults like in, in the movie or the film uh, Angst who are acknowledging their insensitivity or their lack of understanding and empathy for the situation. Because if you don't have anxiety, for instance, talking about angst, and I've been very lucky to have, I mean, everybody has anxiety to a certain degree, but the diagnosable anxiety that stops you in your tracks. The disorder. Basically, yeah. the, Yeah. the, the, The DSM anxiety. If you don't have that level of anxiety, there's no way for you to really understand what they're going through. And and then the danger of that dynamic is that the person who doesn't have anxiety, usually the adult who is judging the child, is going to be imposing expectations on them that are just not realistic, which creates havoc in a family. So that was nice to see played out. Another thing I like about those films is they come in under an hour. Now, when I'm looking at any type of content online, I'm looking at what is the commitment here? Yeah. Well, because that's your investment is your time. Right. I, I'm the same. If someone says, oh, can you watch this real quick? It's only 16 minutes. I'm like, oh my God, that's a quarter of an hour. <laughs> you know, like how do I carve that? I mean, and right now I'm kind of crazy busy, but so that feels long to me. Yeah. I'll watch something that's like three minutes I can do. But when you start to get into seven and eight minutes, that's, that's a bigger chunk of time. Yeah. Isn't that awful? It is awful. <laughs> yeah. But my kids every morning, you know, they have to show me all of the TikToks that they've gathered from the night before. And it's, it's like, okay, I need to sit down and I need to look at these TikToks. But they're kind of fun, aren't they? TikToks are, I have to admit. At least they're admit, entertaining. I have to admit, the ones they pick out are really worth watching. Usually. Yeah, they're cute. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting how our, how our culture has, is shifting in these various directions toward very specific types of content yeah. delivered in this way. I'm curious how long TikTok will last. Yeah. Well, Vine, I don't know what happened with Vine, but no. Vine was kind of a similar Loved Vine. type of thing. I don't, Maybe I don't too know. early for its time. Yeah. But now, but then you've got the security concerns with TikTok because it's a Chinese company. But the kids don't and, care about that. No, they don't. They don't. Just like when I was telling them that Snapchat may not necessarily delete your snaps uh, and they were like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, no, they were sort of like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> I'll just keep doing it. So um, are you in a place right now where in your career, you know that narrative films are not where you're going and probably will not end up in the next 10 years? Or are you, are you thinking about narrative films in your, in your future? Totally. I mean, I come from the narrative world. That's where I started. That's right. Yeah. And with I the television. Features yeah. and then television. I did The Wonder Years and Party of Five and Dawson's Creek. I was the costume designer. And so I grew up in episodic television and I also, you know, did feature films. I was a Warner Brothers and Sony girl. So to be so heavily immersed in the doc world is newer for me, but I love it. I mean, it's definitely a place I'll stay, but I long to get back to my roots. So I very much plan to create narrative content as well. However you can best tell a story is what I want to tell. 
Hmm. And what I want to support in other people's content. Yeah. When I was at Sundance this year, I was on the red carpet a few times asking actors about television versus film. And I got the same answer every time. I mean, usually the question was like, what do you prefer, television versus film? And everyone said the same thing. I don't care. There, there is no difference for me. Yeah. It's all about the story. If I'm able to tell a story, that's where I am. Well, what I love about television is that you get to know your characters and you get to stay with them, whereas a movie is a one-off. Yeah. And unless there's sequels, you don't get to see them again. So, you know, do I want to make episodic television about homelessness, empowerment, quality, bullying, resilience, connection, community? Yeah. Mm -hmm. If that can come through and inspire people to be their best selves or to push out of their comfort zone to be kinder to someone else because it's reflected in some entertaining piece of content, I'm in. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I've noticed about television as well. And starting with, for me anyway, the television series that was the game changer was Sopranos, where you have these character arcs that last an entire season or an entire series, seven or eight seasons. And that type of storytelling where it's it's slow, it's methodical, and you really get invested in those characters. That's why I think for me, television is where it's at. Television's where it's at, but I will tell you that there's a, like I go up to this sort of 70,000 foot level because I want to be a platform that just, you know, it's, it's oversimplifying, but that does good in the world. I want to have content that people can go, we have more titles than Netflix does right now. So it isn't about size. It isn't about volume of titles. It's about, you know, sure, you, there's probably a tipping point of content, a number of titles you have to have in order to be, you know, refreshing it and it's enough for masses to come and watch. But what I also really want is for, you know, when I was thinking about this the other night, people who watch Netflix or streaming services, I think are generally probably a little bit healthier than people who watch TV and are bombarded with all the pharmaceutical ads that we Mm. get every other ad. You know, it's like there is either some condition or disorder that is going on that you might have. So there's a pill you can take. Right. And I'm just thinking, you don't see any of that on streaming services. Yeah. So you're not being programmed. Like They call it programming for a reason, right? You're not being programmed with all this stuff that makes you feel like, I mean, I've watched this woman where the woman who's going like this, and there's a little wind-up thing on her back. I'm like, that's me. Maybe I have that (laughs) because I'm so tired. And then you realize, I'm just tired. Maybe just a day off would be good or a walk in the park or, you know, some sleep. Well, I think it's important, too, to be intentional about how you spend your time and what you watch. And that's that's what's nice about Netflix and, and, and Hulu and IndieFlix, where you go in and there is a certain, at least a certain degree of intentionality to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And you're being inundated with like, hey, what about this? And based upon your interests, you may like this. That's great. But yeah, the, the network television experience for me, I, I have not been part of the network television culture for 10 years probably. Oh, you were an early cord cutter? Yeah, I, I haven't oh. been doing that. See, I have it all because I feel like I have to have it all so that I understand what's going on as I can comment on the landscape. But it is, I mean, I will say, since COVID-19 hit, the ads have never been better. You know how the Super Bowl, do you watch the Super Bowl ads at least? Yeah, yeah. Right, so we still all watch those. Oh, sure. Because they're entertainment in themselves, right? The ads right now are just people being people and they're taking from zoom and the skype and the you know all the ways that people are connecting yeah and making telling shaping those stories and having these ads 
And they're so, oh, they make you feel. It's about people. It's about transparency. It's about caring. And that brand is associating themselves with caring. And, you know, I just feel like, wow, what a great opportunity. I hope that it stays that way. Sure, entertain us too. Like we need yeah. that too. But I love the the shift. And it's not about, I'm going to sell you something, yeah. right? Yeah, well, and that's, I, it's interesting. I, I talked to an advertising, I never thought on this podcast that I would interview someone from the advertising world, but one of my good friends from high school, his older brother is like the superstar in the ad world. And he has an office in London and Seattle. His name's Jim Haven. And um, if you are interested, look at jimhaven.com at his website. The portfolio is amazing. But his commercials are like when you refer to his work as a commercial, you almost feel like you're insulting him. He doesn't take it personally at all. He'll call it a commercial. But these are not commercials. These are stories that are being told. And they're intimate. They're personal. They're real. They're authentic. And they're engaging. And that's the type of storytelling anybody likes to see, whether it's in a commercial or a television series or a movie. Well, and that's just it. I mean, I think even when BMW a long time ago did an, some sort of campaign, and it got Guy Ritchie, the director, and a couple of other hot directors to, to do these little spots for BMW and have kind of a story and a super high action production value, super polished and slick. We were all like, oh my God, that's so great because they're crossing over. And, but the thing is, is, like you said, all we want to do is tell our stories. And it doesn't matter what the running time is, and it doesn't, doesn't matter if it's a feature or TV or a documentary or whatever it is, even if it's just on your phone, right? Mm-hmm. On an Instagram yep. TV thing or IGTV. Tell your story. Tell it well and be engaging. Now everybody can tell their stories. Look at TikTok. Yeah. I mean, like, it's awesome. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. The gatekeepers are like, it's becoming a little bit blended there. It really is. And sometimes you'll see YouTube stars that's like their that's their cv that's their resume i'm a youtube star but now i'm on television or in a movie and same thing with tiktok and vine stars i think people got their start in vine there are people that got their start in vine and and now they're in the acting world or in entertainment world in some way i think commercials are often treated unfairly by artists because there's a lot of artistry in commercial work and a lot of great storytelling in commercials. Oh, yeah. And it's selling. Yeah, it's like true. They know the psychological things to hit, too. Uh-huh. Yeah, sometimes, well, I know if I'm crying in a, during a commercial, it's like, this is uh, <laughs> this is pretty powerful stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to make me cry in like 30 seconds or a minute. As I get older, it's just easier and easier to do. Yeah. I cry more than my wife does, I'm, I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> but uh, so how did you find Hollywood? I, I, I looked at your, your background and, you started at NYU, and and then you found your way to television and film in, in Hollywood, and you were down in Los Angeles for quite some time. Tell us how that happened. So I was at NYU studying political science because I wanted to be a litigator. I love the law. Uh, in fact, it's funny, during COVID-19, like when I can't sleep, I watch old Perry Mason episodes, oh. relive my childhood. But uh, I fell in love with the director while attending NYU, and I ended up dropping out and working on commercials and industrials with him and made a lot of money. And that was really great for a starving student. And I never went back. I then went to see my mom who had moved to LA and she used to be an actress. So she was down there and she'd been started a little casting company. And I ended up getting on a little independent film there that I did the costuming and styling uh, out of the trunk of my car. And then kind of went on to another movie and another movie. And then I got the Wonder Years. Oh, as um, Iconic. 
iconic and and worked with some of the best actors, writers, directors, and producers in the business. And just kind of, you know, went to different shows working with my tribe. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all kind of grew up in the business together. And then I was doing uh, my first sitcom called What I Like About You with Amanda Bynes and Jenny Garth and uh, Leslie Grossman. And um, I don't know, I just, I, I was, uh, I was wrapping up that show and I was working on a big Disney pilot with an actress that I won't name who's from a huge show. And she had me running around looking for this $150 thong. And she was playing a, just a suburban mom who wore jeans and a sweatshirt. Sorry, because you were a costume designer in in that business, And I said, you actually don't, but I would produce and direct short films and feature films during my hiatus. Okay. I was hired to do the job because I was known working really well. I worked really well with difficult people, uh, kids and animals. And so I was like, okay. And I was driving in Beverly Hills. I had already tried to find this $150 thong. The company did not exist anymore. I had offered to build it. She wanted that brand, that thong to wear under her jeans, which by the way, she never took her jeans off. Like it was, it was never ever, it was just for her to have. Yeah. And I couldn't find it. And I was driving in Beverly Hills and the light, you know, the sun was shining in my eyes and I was turning and I almost hit a pedestrian who slammed their hands down on my hood and said, watch where you're going. And I just stopped and I looked and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing with my life? I almost killed somebody. I'm chasing a $150 phantom thong that I already know for a fact doesn't exist anymore because the company shut down like a year ago in France. And so I was like, I have more to offer in life than this. There's Mm. got to be more that I can offer. And that's when I started looking at something else that I can do in film where I could contribute. And I knew the power of film in my own life having seen movies that changed my life and still to this day are, you know, I watch a little scene from them to bring me back to my, my, they're my beacon. So started IndieFlix with my good friend Carlo and the rest is history. Well, what a cinematic moment that is where they slam their hands on your hood and they, they tell you something that's <laughs> almost prophetic, you know, like watch where you're going. Mm-hmm. And what they mean at the moment is literally watch where you're going, don't hit me. But you're interpreting it as sort of this cosmic message. Yeah. Really watch where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cool story. Yeah. It was the, it was the pivotal moment for me. And then I, I dreamt about the name IndieFlix. I dreamt that I was in New York. I was at some fabulous apartment with like floor to ceiling windows. I always dream like a filmmaker. And I was sitting down on this sort of like beautiful leather pillowy thing on the, on the floor next to this fireplace looking out. I think it was at Central Park South because I could see all of Central Park. And I hear someone say, oh, have you met Sheila? She has a company called IndieFlix. And I go, oh my God, I love IndieFlix. And so I stand up out of frame and talk to whoever it is. And I woke up and I went to, in those days, I think it was um, Network Solutions or something. And I put it in and it was available and it was expensive, but I bought it. And then I went to work at Warner Brothers. And I said, I have the name of my company. It's called IndieFlix. And they were like, oh, I've heard of you. And I said, no, you couldn't have heard of me because I just (laughs) bought it. And we don't exist. They're like, yeah, you're the Netflix of independent film. And I was like, this was when they were doing DVD. Oh, my gosh. And so I was like, wow, they've already heard of us. And then people were saying, you can't do that. Netflix will sue you. And so I said, well, if I'm going to get sued, I better get sued right now. So I emailed Reed Hastings, who sent back to me. He goes, no, I think it's great. Good luck. Yeah, no no trademark infringement there. Right. So, and I still will send him things occasionally, and and he'll respond and say, I like it. I made a commercial once called uh, Keeping My Netflix. And I got my friends and my family and my neighbors and everyone who worked for IndieFlix. Yeah. 
cleared out my living room and filmed this little ad called I'm Keeping My Netflix. And everyone's like, keeping my Netflix, keeping my Netflix. And then they said, but I'm adding IndieFlix because, and then all the reasons why to add IndieFlix. Oh, that's that's brilliant because you, you can't fight that type of momentum. So why not just hop on that wave? Right. And, and, and why would you? I wouldn't want to give up Netflix. Are no, you kidding? No. And I sent that to Reed and he's like, oh, cute. I like it. <laughs> As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy. Just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. That's great. Well, let's go back to the Wonder Years because that's that's one of the first television series that I remember from it was my late teens, I think, but really falling in love with characters. Mm-hmm. Like you just Winnie Cooper. Yeah, Winnie and <laughs> and um oh, what's the the main character's name? Kevin Arnold, Fred Savage. Fred Savage's character, yeah. yeah. But these are characters that you're just so rooting for. And the period part of it, too, I think was yeah. pretty unique. I don't think that had been done in, in television up to that point. Well, I mean, there was like happy days and stuff well, like that. Well, that's true. Yeah, but not to, not in this dramatic way that right. I had ever seen. I'd seen it in sitcoms. But I was I, I loved those characters. I loved the, the series. Did you at the time know how special it was when yes. you were doing the costume design? 100%. Um, I actually did not do the pilot. I came on first episode. I saw the pilot. They aired it after... Super Bowl Sunday. And I watched it and I just something, it's like Cupid shot an arrow through my whole being. Like I just got, I became obsessed and I had to work on that show and I tracked down where they were shooting and I went down there and I said, can I work here? And they were like, no, and we're not hiring. And I kept saying, I'll do anything. I will sweep floors. I will do anything. And they were like, no. And I kept going back and going back. And like the fourth or fifth time I went back and I'd bring cookies and I'd be like anything. I was, shameless. And I'm not that way, actually. Um, this was out of character for me. But I was, I, I just, I'd never had a show that I wanted to be a part of so badly. And the designer at the time was standing in the hallway when I came in and she said, well, I can use you. You can sort hangers for me and clean up the wardrobe room. And I said, great. And so I did that. And I did it so fast. She thought it was going to take me like, I don't know, a couple of weeks. She wanted me to organize every single article of clothing with like racks and racks of clothes of 60s clothing. And so I organized and tagged and sized everything in like three or four days. Mm. And so then she gave me more things to do. And I ended up becoming her assistant. And then she got fired. So they brought in someone else. And I started training her and getting her ready, whatever. And she didn't like it. So she left. And they said, we're going to find someone else. We're going to need you to train them too. And I said, just give it to me. (laughs) And they said, well, no, because we need someone who's lived in that time period. And I said, are you kidding me? How do you think they made Ben-Hur and you know, like some of the old movies or yeah. even like sci-fi, you know, like Star Wars. I mean, you can't have lived in a time period to be able to costume design or, or art design or set design anything. And so they were like, but you're so young because I was early 20s. Yeah. And I said, I got this. Look, I've carried two other designers. I can do this. So they did. And then I said, give me, just give me a couple episodes. If you're not happy, I'll train someone else. And so I took over the show. And then my producer called, a, oh, I don't know. At some point, and said, "Oh, congratulations on your Emmy!" And I didn't even know what an Emmy was. It's like, what is an Emmy for costume design? <laughs> it's only the best award ever. For, <laughs> but I for didn't television. win. Beauty and the Beast won. Yeah, but um, it was fun being nominated and and you know going to the show. And yeah, everything. 
was that your first like awards experience where yeah. you're at there on the red carpet and yeah that that must be cool yeah that whole thing that was a whole nother night where i didn't know that my husband got um car sick so we were abc and new world had sent a limo and we got in the car and i'm like this is so exciting and he's like throwing up because he has to be driving otherwise he gets car sick oh so he ended up sitting up front with the driver and i sat in the back and it was a whole thing <laughs> So what kind of relationships did you develop in that television series that resulted in um, other opportunities? Oh, I mean, all my shows. Because I, they all, you know, people would break away from a show and go to different shows. And I mean, sometimes it was almost like a tug of war. No, come do mine. No, come do mine. And so that's how I then went on to Party of Five. And I did uh, the pilot of Dawson's Creek. I did not go and do the whole series. I did the first couple episodes and got a local crew trained up there and then handed off the show. I didn't want to move to North Carolina. Yeah. And then um, Smallville, I went up and actually that was more like a kind of a come in and not fix, but there was some issues. And so I was sort of the person to go in and sort of set the boat, right the ship. And then, uh, well, so then when it came down to the, I did another show called Jack and Jill, which was really fun with Amanda Peet and Justin Kirk and Ivan Sergey and Sarah Paulson. Sarah um, Paulson's amazing. She's unbelievable. And Sarah Paulson and Amanda Peet are just the best of friends and they were just a hoot to work with. And that was a great show to work on. It was so fun. Then I went on, before I went on to my first sitcom with Amanda Bynes and Jenny Garth, I got offered um, Six Feet Under. Oh. And I was just like, yes, this is so good. And my kids were like, please do Amanda Bynes, because she was like the Miley Cyrus at the time. Uh-huh. And I was just like, I'm not going to do a sitcom. I'm a, you know, episodic girl. Yeah. I ended up somehow <laughs> accepting that one. And my whole crew was, who comes with me everywhere I go, they're like, do a sitcom. We won't work, you know, 18 hour days. We'll have a much easier schedule. And so I said, okay, fine. And I did a sitcom and I didn't realize you have a life. It's the only show you can do in, in the industry where you actually could have a life. Right. Because you only shoot, you know, two days mm -hmm. and you get a hiatus. Yeah. So it was really fun, but it was hard to turn that down. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then to look at where that show went. I mean, th th that's like one of the first HBO series that really kind of was a game changer, I think, yeah. like one of the Sopranos types of, of series. But like we do in life, when you look back on Crossroads, if you had taken that path as opposed to- I wouldn't have started in yeah, Netflix. Yeah, you wouldn't be where you are today. It opened up my life to be able to come up with something else to do. Yeah. I never, I, I don't think there are any, people don't always love when I say this, especially in my family, but they're all accustomed to it now. I think that Every time something is challenging or hard, that means that the opportunity is even greater. Mm -hmm. And that every single thing that happens in your life is happening for a really good reason, not just a reason, but a really good reason. You can choose to take away just a reason or no reason, but I choose to think that everything is happening for a really great reason. It, we have to pay attention. You have to be present. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I've heard that sentiment before. It's like nothing worthwhile comes easy. I don't like or, that saying. You know, it, it, uh, well, it, 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 nothing, nothing that it has ever been worthwhile for me has ever come easy, except for my kids. That was pretty easy, you See? know, having kids. See, you've already just blown that out of the water. I don't believe that one. The whole p no pain, no gain. Like, why do I have to go through pain to gain? That is really negative programming. I don't like that. You know what? I think it's better to say sometimes there's pain. Yeah. And you can still gain. You, you, you can push through it and still if there. we can yeah. turn the dials and change the way we view things, right? That, oh, this one really killed me in the early days was that, you know, um, what was it? One of the greatest characteristics of oh, patience, right? You got to have patience. 
like, why? I could be waiting forever. Can't I just go after something? Why do I have to be patient? Right. That's like saying, wait. Well, my, when I first, you know, you, you wanted to be a litigator before you became a filmmaker and I actually am a litigator. So <laughs> I, I would, that's my day job. I, I'm a trial lawyer. Oh my God. Um, I'm so jealous. I think, you know, I think you chose the right path. Yeah, but definitely. <laughs> but you know, my, my boss, when he first hired me was uh, saying, you need to pay your dues. This is all about paying your dues. You need to be the first one here, the last one to leave. You need to work Saturdays. I don't even care what you're doing on Saturdays as long as I drive by and I see your car is here. And I bought into that bullshit. Yeah. You know. But I think there's some truth to having experience under your belt. No, that's true. As long as the paying your dues part He was just getting is, some extra work out of you for nothing. <laughs> right. But as long as when you're paying your dues, you're doing meaningful work and yeah. you're you're putting in your ten thousand hours, your Malcolm Gladwell's ten thousand hours, then I think that's fine. I think that's a good you're also um, showing, you're proving you're, you're a team player. Right. Yeah, because I, I think the work ethic in, in the, this is, I don't want to offend Sarah, who is part of this generation, but the younger generations, they're not buying into first one to work, last one to leave, working weekends, no matter what. They're more into, yeah, I'll work hard, but I'm not going to just do it for show. So their values are different than yeah. I think the older generations are, and we're we're trying to accommodate that. But I think that's a good thing for our culture that they're basically saying, I'm not going to be part of this bullshit <laughs> anymore. You know, can I tell you that I work with a lot of millennials, a lot of women, a lot of millennials. My mother works with me. She's, you know, pushing 80. And so we kind of run the gamut of, of age ranges and diversity. The millennials have taught me so much. I think it is the reason I'm still in business because they're not as some of my friends say, oh, they're so entitled. I'm like, actually, they have really great ideas and they're not afraid to share them. You know, so many people are afraid to share ideas and they sit on them because they don't want to be judged or look like they don't know what they're doing. Millennials, I mean, think about young women who are going into the workforce who have grown up with all this conversation about Me Too and Time's Up and they're just like, they're walking in and you know what? They better be entitled to think that I am um, allowed to have equal pay and I have equal opportunity. I love that they're going in with that attitude. With respect, with dignity, you know, they're not stupid. They can read people. They can read stuff on this stuff really easily. I mean, it's, and they can move. They're super, super smart and fast. The millennials that work with me, they're in before me sometimes. They're responding to me on the weekends because their phone is in their hand a lot. So they're like, oh, I'll just take care of that now. So they are probably what makes IndieFlix great. Yeah, and and so they're they're working outside of regular office hours because that's just they're tuned in anyway. Yeah, on their phone. And maybe I just hired the right people. You yeah, know, yeah, they're not sitting there playing on Facebook. That's what you do when you're 13 and 14. That's not what you do when you're 19 and 20. They're over that. They're already over it. They're like, they're not. You know, sure they might do a few Snapchats back, but they're not doing all the other stuff. Like they're they're actually working and they research really fast and they can throw something together and they've got all these apps to make little commercials and you're like, how'd you do that? And you're like, oh, there's this app. You just push that and you're done in 30 seconds. You're like, oh, wow, like <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. I think they're teaching us a lot, perhaps even more than we're teaching them, but it might be a slight overstatement, but in, they are, they're valuable and I think they're under, underappreciated. Yeah. And I think they're unfairly maligned yeah. for this. I mean, even the term millennial, like if you say, is that a negative or a positive connotation? Most people are going to say, oh, millennials. Yeah. You know, uh, they're, yeah. They're just, 
they don't get it or they've entitled the entitlement culture. Yeah. yeah but I'm glad that you're seeing it like that. But they're that. also coming into like having the checks, I mean, the credit cards and they're paying for things. And they care about transparency. They care about brands that care about people, yeah. that care about our planet, that care about future. And so they are going to hold society accountable. Yeah. And, and do you find that they're, I'm not sure how to ask this question, but do you find that there's a certain sense of unattainability that they have when it comes to the wealth that was available from the, in the 80s and 90s and 2000s? That does not seem to be, from their perspective, attainable anymore. I mean, they're not even fooling themselves. So that they. I don't think they want it. I think. Yeah. They, they, I don't think that that's important to them. I think what's important to them is experiential. I think they, with, with the, you know, Airbnb, even though I know that's going to go through a rough comeback, but just the, the home sharing economy, the car sharing economy, the fact that you can work remote, that you can like experience the world and cultures and people and create family and home in many places around the world and feel connected, I think that is a rich life, not having a bunch of stuff that you have to continually figure out how to pay for. They're redefining. Wealth and affluence. And I mean, think about people who just have the big fat house and a whole bunch of cars and stuff, and that's it. And then you think about the person who's traveling the world, knows some fabulous people, have had amazing experiences, doing multiple things. I think kids are going to have, what, four or five careers? of which like two or three haven't even been created yet. So what's the one skill set they should have to be able to, to fulfill those other jobs? And I have always thought it should be um, storytelling, communication. Mm. Yeah. In whatever form, whether it's through coding, whether it's through film, whether it's through music, whether it's through writing, whether no matter, or AI, v, you know, VR, whatever it is, how do we communicate feeling and story and something that connects us, something that makes us feel like we belong? Mm, that's profound. Yeah, storytelling is, and it's ironically, I think storytelling is one of the things that has fallen to the wayside in education and w with the arts. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about Company Seven. I don't know if you remember a, a um, an arts company from grade school called Company Seven. Do you oh, remember that? No. They would go into schools and they would paint and do charades and drama and all kinds of arts things. But I had that in grade school, and I don't remember my kids having those types of experiences. And it, it seems like every generation, the arts gets um, cut even further. Yeah. And so this, you know, how do you learn how to tell stories or even what a, what a story is? And you know, it's one thing to like be assigned to read a, a Shakespeare play in, right. in high school, which everybody kind of grinds through and, yeah. you know, but, but to actually be a part of a storytelling curriculum would be really cool to see in our schools. Yeah, and hello, marketing, like which ties right into storytelling, right? Yeah. Why are people not learning learning marketing? Like, I just feel like even when I talk to filmmakers, I'm like, okay, you got to market your film. Like, I don't know how to do that. I'm like, you know how to make a movie. You know how to tell a story. You can market. Mm -hmm. You don't need to know SEO and all that other stuff like that. That's different. That's the, sort of the technical stuff. But to learn how to market your movie, why should people watch it? Why did you make it? Who did you make it for? Identify your audience. Break it down. Where does that audience live? What do they like? What do they eat? What do they care about? Infiltrate that, you know, yeah. like pitch your story to those people, speak their language. And, you know, it's like, what? No, I'm just a filmmaker. It's like, you've got the tools. You've got the skill set already. You just now have to apply it and it takes a little effort. Now, we know that you did not go through film school. Uh, you dropped out of your political science program and kind of found your path 
in a yeah. unique way, very organically, it sounds like. But what do you, like if, if a 18-year-old high school senior comes to you and says, hey, I want to be a storyteller and I think I want to do this through film, would you advise film school as a path? You know, the best thing about film school is that you get to create your tribe, a network. You start building a network. And I think that that's what the well, all industries are kind of based on that, right? Like how you get a job and how you move up and who your people are. But I think in film in particular, because in the early days, most people didn't go to film school. They just showed up in Hollywood and they were waiting tables and either going to be trying to be an actor, producer, grip, electric, like whatever it is, until they got on something. And then once you get on that first thing, you start to go on to something else and then something else. And all of a sudden, you've got a resume. And suddenly you get calls and you're not sure and you're in the union and whatever. Or you get on a series. Series are the best. I did three series. So yeah. you, you run for seven years. So you can do other things in between. If you want to know like the history of film, you don't need to go to film school to learn how to operate equipment. You can learn that. Go be a PA, make little films. Nowadays, you can make a movie with this. It's not the equipment. It's your ability to tell a story. So some people, I think film school is great. Other people, I don't think it's necessary. I think learning on the fly and in the, in the moment, I think is really powerful. And you are oftentimes paid mm. to do it, mm -hmm. even if it's just crap pay for your whole life, you know, for that period of time. Yeah. Um, but you're building your network. And from there, it's easier to get to the next thing, which makes it easier to get to the next thing. And if you want to direct, you know, go be an assistant to a director, be a production assistant, learn how it all happens, be on set, be in the editing room. If you want to be a producer, be a producer's assistant, work as a production assistant, put your fingers in everything and go the path where you're going to be at the beginning, the middle and the end, but you're not sitting in the editing room. Because I think producer's path and director's path have different paths. And then you, they start to blend over on the other side. Yeah. And that's their film school. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. And doing you're being it. paid to do it yeah. and you're getting trusted and you're building a network and you're in it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's always important to be writing. Write a poem, write a lyric, write a tagline, write, practice writing. The beautiful thing is the kids are writing, whether it's a tweet, a Facebook post, an Instagram post, a Snapchat, and they're putting images to it, and now they're putting video to it, and they're adding animation, and they're putting titles and music, and I mean, they're creating on the fly like this. It's like no-brainer for them. Right. Wow. Yeah. Writing, I think, is another, if I was going to give advice to, to young people, it would be, you know, write well. Or communicate well. Yeah. That really is part of the storytelling. I mean, if you're going to be a good storyteller, you have to be able to write. Yes. And you have to. You have to be able to write for anything, I think. Unless, right. I mean, sure, bagging groceries, you don't need to know how to write. But wouldn't it be nice if when you go home after bagging groceries, you can like at least write about your day in a journal or something? Like It's another way to express ourselves. I also think no matter what we do in life, we have to continue to nurture connection with ourselves in order to continue to thrive and to keep our mental health in balance. And I think actually film school is probably really good for people who kind of want to take the path of, oh, I don't want to just go out and make stuff, right? I actually want to know who I am as a filmmaker, who I am as a storyteller. And I want to learn by looking at other people really in depth from people who are super knowledgeable. And I want to take that path. So I think it just depends on yeah. who you are. If you need that structure. Yeah. And you and got the cash. You got the it. cash and you've got the time and you've got the patience. Yeah. I find a lot of kids are like, I want to be a filmmaker and what do I do right now? How do I do that? And I do always say, you should probably move to Hollywood because mm -hmm. it really helps to be down there. I think we think, as much as I'd like to promote Seattle as the place you should come, 
The reality is, is that making movies and being in the film industry is not all that glamorous. And it's a lot of work and a lot of long hours. And I think it's really important that kids know that, that yeah. people know that. You experience that. Yeah. Yeah. And you were there for 26 years, right? Yeah. Long time. And I have been in, I mean, my God, I've been in dirty, muddy ponds with snakes that they had put in it for a low budget Italian feature where I'm sitting there and it's three in the morning and I'm so tired. We're working six day weeks and it's just, just not glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's certainly paying your dues. <laughs> oh yeah. I've done it all. Yeah. Well, good advice. I like getting practical advice from the people I talk to in the, on the podcast because I think that's why people, my, my listeners listen uh, is they they're looking for the how to's and yeah. uh, being in Los Angeles. I've heard that from other guests as well. It's, it helps. It's not everything, but it definitely helps to be there for networking and also getting a sense for how unglamorous it is. It sounds like, you know, film festivals, I highly recommend everyone go to film festivals because it's, it's not like going to the movies. Uh, you go to the movies with a community of people that actually want to talk about what you just watched. And oftentimes the filmmakers there and I mean, this COVID-19 thing is, I love how everyone is sort of like quickly segueing to online screenings and chatting Q&As and stuff, but it isn't the same. No. But it's, hey, it's great for now. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I go to Sundance as, as often as I can, is being in that audience and listening to the Q&As or participating in the yeah. Q&As. There's no other way to do that, to no. connect with filmmakers like that. And even if you don't ask any questions. You're just like absorbing and, and watching it. These are human beings that are part of this creative process. And it's, it's a very humanizing experience, I think, because yeah. it's, it's not, I mean, they're there in their regular clothes. They're not glamorous usually. And so you see them in a very human way and they're talking about their creative process and it's, it's hard work. They've usually been at this for years by the time they hit the stage. And so you see what goes into it. Yeah. And um, I, I love that part of it. And also, when you do see the, the stars, too, you, you see that they're just regular people. Mm -hmm. You know, you get to hear their perspective on, you know, why they chose to do this independent film. And they're storytellers, too. Well, and you can also chat them up, you know, just seeing them around the festival, too, or just anybody. Like, you can talk film with people. In fact, it's funny. I, when I, I've, got, I've been to seven, Sundance, like, I don't know, 17 years or something. And I always seem to meet the people I'm supposed to meet in line for the bathroom. Like, it's just, it's a mixing of everyone. There's no levels so much. I mean, I would, actually, I should take that back. Because when they had the gifting suites and they were like everywhere and you could only get in if you were on a list and then they give you these big bags of stuff that everybody, <laughs> of course, we all want that stuff. Yeah. We want to be on that list. That kind of segregated people a little bit because they'd go into these gifting suites where you could like get your makeup done, get your hair done, get a little massage, get this goodie bag, whatever, try some stuff on for free. And then that would take their whole afternoon. So they weren't out in the restaurants. They weren't out on the streets. When Sundance kind of put the kibosh on that, suddenly they were out in droves and they were out in the restaurants and they were out on the streets and you could bump into people and take photos with them and talk to them about their art. And they were so grateful to be able to talk to people. Yeah. That's, that's the coolest part about Sundance for me is how accessible it is mm -hmm. you know, just to, to be up close with people that we mythologize mostly, Yeah, but they're not mythological <laughs> figures. They're just regular people. I just hope that the festival circuit is able to stay viable after this uh, COVID situation. That would be really sad. I know South by Southwest went online this year. and How was that? Do you know? I, I have not participated in it yet, but I'm going to 
going to try to connect with some filmmakers through that. Well, Sif canceled. Sif canceled, and you're you're a big part of Sif, aren't you? I've been um, there are years that I've been really big. Whether I was yeah. a juror or a sponsor or a filmmaker, we had our film. Our, my first feature film was at Sif, but it overlaps with Cannes, so I had to start kind of doing every other year. Cannes sort of became a sweet spot for me. I was one of the first female Americans to participate on a European panel and um, for streaming services. This was a long time ago. And so I have done quite a bit of stuff over there as well. And so that was always an overlap. And then as I started to get into making angst and like and getting involved with, you know, and showing them in sort of the international schools and then kind of crossing over into other organizations in Hong Kong and China. I was suddenly over there. I was at their first mental health summit in Shenzhen, showing a rough cut of angst. Oh, wow. Uh, at the second largest convention center in the country. And that was pretty trippy. But that was during, that wasn't during SIF. That was during Sundance. That was the first time I missed Sundance. Oh. And it felt really weird, like, oh, something's wrong with this. But then I, I went over there and it was amazing. And then I'm sort of like, how did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> but movies are powerful. Movies can heal. Movies bring us together. Movies. You know, I always think music and movies are the most powerful mediums on the planet. And, you know, when you can show a movie to 2,000, in some instances, we'll hit a school and hit 13,000 students, like in two weeks. When we do that, suddenly it's like, wow, we've just reached a lot of people and had a lot of conversation really fast. Making an impact. Yeah. And then we have all these materials we leave behind, too, to keep the conversation going. And then we can measure our impact. So we're actually seeing that we are having an impact. So do you know if SIF is going to be online this year, or are they just canceled uh, completely? No, I think they're completely canceled. Oh, oh, that's so sad. I know. Yeah. I just started getting into SIF last year. It's a um, long so, one, 25 days. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it seems to be the one of the more accessible festivals. Mm -hmm. You know, that you can get tickets. You Yeah. I think what is always, because I go to Toronto, SIF, Cannes, Sundance, and sometimes I'll go to some other, you know, smaller ones as well. But like Toronto and Sundance and Cannes are so very, I mean, sure, there's lots of other places you can go to watch things, but it's very close together. So like it's crowded, you feel people, it's not very COVID-19 friendly. No. But it's community. Yeah. And SIF is more spread out. So SIF might actually do well during COVID-19 yeah. <laughs> other than the theater experience. But still, it's like, it's pretty much like, I mean, S Seattle Center has it, but then it's at yeah. downtown, Renton, Everett, Snohomish. Like it's spread out because it's bringing the festival to the people which I love, but you kind of, you know, the community's feel is a little different. It is. I mean, I, I, I remember at Sundance, I'm mostly at Eccles Theater when I'm at Sundance, which is yeah. the main where the red carpet premieres are. Yeah. And if you're at, at Eccles, you do see, I mean, you're in line with, I met Kenneth Turan, the Los Angeles Times film critic in line there. Yeah. And you're just kind of like, wow, this is so cool. And it's very tight knit, literally tight knit. I yeah. mean, you're just in, in these really cramped lines right. eating <laughs> this <of> really <laughs> bad food. I, I thought I was going to be eating a bunch of great food. In, in, no, but uh, the Park shuttle City. service is excellent. The shuttle service is great. <laughs> yeah. The Ubers were a little bit out of outrageous. Oh, um, my ridiculous. Yeah. What projects are you working on that uh, might be coming out in the next few months that you're excited about? So I do have a new movie coming out, too, actually. One I directed called The Upstanders, which is about, it's, it started off as being about bullying and cyberbullying. I was bullied as a kid, so it was one very close to my heart. And it ended up being more about resilience and attention and connection and community. 
so that we can feel like we belong. Because if we felt like we belonged and we mattered, we might not hurt each other so much. Yeah. So that one took me down a very different path, and I learned so much. I watched it, by the way. Oh, Excellent. Did you like yeah, it? It was. Great, We're still working powerful. on it, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're still doing the music, and the. I still haven't quite one hundred percent locked picture, but and then I have another one that I executive produced called Nevertheless, which is about kind of looking at sort of the layers behind Me Too and Times Up and addressing sexual harassment, and that one is fascinating. And I worked with the director Sarah Moshman, who did a fabulous job of kind of. It's a really complex conversation to have. She did a great job of kind of boiling it down to consumable bites. You know, we're all in this and it's going to take all of us to make change, but there is a path forward and there's a lot of hope. So I'm really proud of that film as well. It's, it's funny to be taking films out in the middle of a pandemic because nobody, either they want dumbed down TV or feel good. And so, you know, to watch something about <laughs> sexual harassment or cyberbullying, it's just kind of like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. But angst and like are definitely like brimming right now because people are like, oh my God, we're like living on our devices every second of the day. How do we find balance? Or with anxiety and angst, it's like, it's never been higher because Mm -hmm. of the pandemic. So how can we help ourselves? How can we help our families, our colleagues and friends? So those films are like doing great. And we're doing the online community experience now. So I've taken all of our offline experiences. So now we do live webinar screenings with Q&As and all sorts of fun stuff. And we just started them and they are unbelievable. You still get that community, like jolt of connection, that feeling in your heart and in your brain. Mm. I didn't know that that would work. I was like, oh, you know, we got to do something. It's unbelievable. Like the connection that's there and the enthusiasm and people are typing and talking and it it was really cool. Well, the nevertheless is the one that I was not able to watch. So if I could ask Natalie for a, yeah. a renewed link on that. I'd love to see the screener or participate in one of those live Q&A things oh, too. would uh, love that. Yeah. We also, if anybody wants to learn about any of the films that are just available through the special screenings as opposed to they're not on IndieFlix.com because they're kind of, think of it like they're doing their theatrical release. So they're held back to just plain theaters or communities. You can find it at IndieFlix.com forward slash edu. Okay. And those are all of our sort of social impact tentpole films. So where can people find you online in social media? I'm IndieFlix CEO on everything. Okay. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, we had a little issue, but that wasn't my go-to for some time working on that one. And then Facebook and LinkedIn. And where are you most active on social media? Probably Instagram, a little bit of Facebook. And uh, I really love LinkedIn too. I love keeping up with everybody on a business front. Yeah, we just connected. Thank you for accepting my, my request. Sheila, it was really fun talking to you. Thanks for making time oh, thank for, you. Uh, for me in your office and your lovely lake view. So nice to see another human being in person <laughs> that I'm not just like brushing by really fast. <laughs> yeah. All right. It was great talking to you, Sheila. Thanks, Brian. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favorite ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. 